hair journey, we always want to be incredibly serious about honesty and uh, transparency and, and being real with each other and authentic. And uh, we, we know that nobody's got it all together. Nobody here claims to have it all together. Um, but we also know that one of the things that helps us get closer to who we want to be is being honest about who we currently are. And we want to be able to do that with each other. So all of that to set up my question, and I want you to be honest. I want you to be 100% honest with your answer. How many of you like wrestling? Yeah, okay. Thanks for your honesty. Thanks. Uh, about the same number in the early service, if you're keeping track of percentages of uh, wrestling fans at Journey. Um, how many of you like classic wrestling, like, like the good old days, like the... Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, Andre the Giant. Uh, more hands are going up. Oh, yes, I see those hands all over the building. Revival's about to break out. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Wrestling number one, Mr. Wrestling number two. Like those, those. In, in my thorough research for the message today, I, I came across the little known fact that President Jimmy Carter's favorite wrestler was Mr. Wrestler number two. And I don't really know what to do with that, that that the president had a favorite wrestler, but apparently our current wrestler, uh, current president is in the WWE Hall of Fame. Is, is what, and there's all kind of YouTubes that you really don't want to watch. Uh, so I don't know what to do with that either. But there are a lot of people that like wrestling and, and pay pay-per-view and go to huge WrestleMania events. I'm not asking you to raise your hand if you've been to one of those. All right, We don't want to know that part of your story. But here's the deal. The whole point of wrestling, well, the whole point of wrestling is to make money and to entertain. All right, let's get that out of the, out of the way. But wrestling, the idea of wrestling, like or Olympic wrestling, the whole idea is conflict, right? One person going against another person. One person mad at the other. The madder they are, the better, right? The more screaming and chairs they throw and Stuff they set on fire, and you know, it's the higher they jump, they come off the top ring, and like all of that's better. The more conflict, the better. You want to see lots of conflict when you're watching wrestling. Any boxing fans? Boxing fans in the house? Boxing, yeah, it's kind of lost some steam here. Uh, but uh, that's the thing about pay per view. I've, I've never done pay per view myself, just again, honesty. Not, I'm not judging you if you have, but th that's, that's the whole risk of pay per view, right? You, you pay for this fight. And if there's a knockout in the first round, you are really ticked off, right? Because you pay for like 15 rounds of conflict. Like you want, you want blood and sweat and teeth flying out. And all. You want to see some conflict if you paid for pay-per-view. I forgot to ask this in, in the first. So MMA, like MMA people? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a big MMA people person either, but uh, no judgment. It's a judgment-free zone. If that's you, you do you. But the whole point of all of those is conflict. Like you, want, you want people to be angry with each other. The, the, the reality is that's not the only place there's conflict, right? It's, conflict doesn't just take place in the ring with bells and, and, and men in tights, right? That's not the only place you find conflict. You find conflict in a lot of places. You find it at work. Uh, sometimes you find it in your own family. A lot of times you find it in your own family, conflict. Uh, you find it in friendships, relationships. There, there can be conflict and and sadly, and again, this is just honesty, you, you find conflict in the church. Like some of us could tell stories, right? 
Like we could tell stories about the church we used to go to or, or this time in our life when there was like this big, huge blow-up and this business meeting, and then people said things, and people walked out. And there was the, the sad reality is that conflict is not just out there. It's a problem in here. Right? Hopefully nobody's wearing tights, but in here, like in the church, I mean, not specifically journey, in the church, uh, there's often conflict. We're, we're studying the book of Philippians. A guy named Paul writes it. He's a follower of Jesus. He didn't know Jesus when he was on earth, but has a vision of Jesus. Gives his life totally, completely converts to Christianity, like doesn't hold anything back. He once hated Christians. Now he is one. He once killed Christians. Now he's willing to die because he is a Christian. This total transformation of his life. And he's writing to a little church in Philippi, and he has this heart for them. He has this thing that he wants. And one of the biggest things he wants for them is that they would get along. That there would be, he calls it, unity. There would be a lack of conflict. Not just a lack of conflict. Uh, that's probably not the best way to say it. Sometimes with our kids, that's what we want, right? I mean, we want them to love each other. Julie and I talked about it. We want peace, but if they would just not say anything for 30 minutes, we would go for that. Now, we'd be good if we could just get silence. That's not what Paul's talking about when he writes to the church at Philippi. He's not saying, look, I just want you to knock it off. Paul's saying, no, I want, you to, I want your hearts to come together. Like, I want there to be this strength because you are so committed to one another. And, and you're, you're so much going to fight against anything that is creating conflict in you. He wanted this deep, lasting commitment. He, and, and conflict is a problem at Philippi. We see it in some of the things that Paul says. We're going to come back to it in a a few weeks, and he's going to deal with a specific case, and he's going to give tips on how to handle it. But as we're getting to that point, Paul's already saying, look, I know this is going on. Like, I know there's an undercurrent there. I know there's some people that are mad at some other people, and I'm begging you, like, stop. Get your hearts on the same page because, and this I think is Paul's big picture idea, because what God wants to do through you in the world is just far too important for you to ruin it by arguing with each other. Paul's trying to say, there is this cosmic eternal thing, this eternal reason God put the church on the planet. And it was to exalt him and glorify him and then to find people without Jesus and get them connected and in relationship with Jesus. And I don't want your conflict with each other to negate what God's really trying to do through you in the world. So this is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the other. So he begins this section with the word, therefore. It's our chapter 2. There weren't any chapters. Paul's just writing a personal letter. And so, therefore, some of your translations say so. Either way, Paul's connecting this thought with his previous thought. And if you were here last week or you listened to the podcast, Paul has been arguing 
that, look, there's going to be suffering in your life. It, there just is. There's no way to escape it. You're going to have trials and hardships and difficulties, and some of those are just life. Some of those are just because life's not perfect and the world's not perfect, and you're going to go through hard times, and some of those are specifically going to be because you're a follower of Jesus. Like following Jesus is going to get tough sometimes. There's going to be all of this suffering. And then he says, look, I want you to live a life worthy of Jesus in spite of that. Like you're going to be covered up with this sometimes. Like this wave is going to wash over you of hardship and trials and, and sufferings and obstacles. You're going to be going through that. Therefore, don't do that to each other. Like, don't bring conflict and hardship and, and trials into the family of God. You're all dealing with that outside the family of God. You're walking through tough stuff in your own life. So when you come together, don't add to that by being a source of conflict among other people. Don't do that to the person sitting next to you because they're going through tough stuff out in the world. Don't do, the, the, don't do that to the person in your community group that you don't exactly jive with, you know, that person you, 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 like you don't really relate to. Don't do that to them because they're having a hard enough time out in the world. Don't bring suffering and trial and conflict and obstacles into the church because you're going to have plenty of that outside of the church. Life's going to be hard enough, so don't do it inside of God's family. I mean, the reality is most of us have experienced this in our spiritual life, in our church history. I, most of us can think back to a church, a time, a business meeting, a, an issue at a previous church, and like this mushroom cloud exploded over it and people left, and there was all of this stuff that went on, and some of us even walked away at that point. Some of us went, this is not what I came to church for. Some of, some of us said, like, I, I got enough stuff to deal with in my, the rest of my life. I don't come to church to be in conflict and to be on a side and to be against somebody. And we walked away. As a matter of fact, this morning while, while we're worshiping, there are people who aren't in church anywhere because that happened somewhere in their past. There was some moment in their past and, and I'm not making an excuse. I, I'm not saying that's the right approach to just abandon church. I'm just saying, if we're honest, a lot of us get it. A lot of us get it. That it hurts. And there's a weight that we carry when that becomes the characteristic of the church where we attend. Paul's pleading so hard in, in, in these verses, he uses this phrase, if any, over and over again. I, to me, I just hear Paul begging them when he, when he says these things. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and Paul knows they do. Like, if you're connected to Christ, you got encouragement from him. And Paul's saying, look, if, if you can register just as the smallest good thing that's come from Jesus in your life, if you have any comfort from his love, well, of course you do. You got a lot of comfort. But I mean, just the smallest amount. This is the smallest amount of you felt God's love in your life. If, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, well, of course you do. You, if you're followers of Jesus, you all share in the Spirit. But Paul's saying, look, if you have just the least amount of faith going on, 
Like if you're, if you're the youngest, newest follower of Jesus at all, if any of this registers in any way, if faith, if walking with Jesus means anything to you, would you be connected and, and in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And, and certainly if you're a mature follower of Jesus, if you're a grown-up follower of Jesus, if you've been walking with Jesus for years, then Paul would say to you, please, Will you set an example of walking together with one heart and one spirit and one mind, not because the church is always right and not because the pastor is always right and not, not, not because the decisions are always perfect, but because God's trying to do something in the world through the church and would you not let the church's conflict become an obstacle for people who are trying to find Jesus? Would you be one? He uses this phrase at the end of that if any section. If you have any tenderness and compassion, if there's any emotion at all in you for Jesus and for his people, the word translated tenderness in, my, in the NIV <clears throat> is a great Greek word to learn. It's splanknon. I mean, if you're going to learn a Greek word, learn that. Splanknon. Splanknon means guts, right? It sort of sounds like guts, like spill your splanknon, right? It sounds like if, if there's going to be another word for guts, splanknon's a pretty good one. What Paul is saying is that that place, that place deep down inside of you where you feel affection, where, where you feel emotion, like when you fall in love and you feel it way down here, that spot, Paul's saying. When you get butterflies in your stomach because you're anxious, that spot, like if, like if you've ever had the slightest deep compassion and love for God's people, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, don't let conflict become the obstacle that keeps somebody away from Jesus. Have a united heart and a united mind have a united mission. Realize the mission is not yours and it's not the pastor's. It's not one particular church. God founded the church that lost people would come to know Jesus and believers would grow up in Christ and God would get glory from it all. And Paul's saying, would you not prioritize anything above that? Would you not prioritize anything over that? And that that takes effort, and that takes attention, and that takes focus to not do that. He says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish amb ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Don't, don't, don't let it rise up out of me wanting to get my way. Don't let conflict start because I wanted it this way and it didn't go that way. We all want things a certain way. We all have preferences and opinions. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Paul's just saying, don't let that rise to the level of, of causing conflict among your brothers and sisters, among the people that are on mission with you in the church. And, and look, I get it. I know that some people... 
I know, that, I know that some people walk away from the church because of truth. Because, I mean, the Bible says hard things sometimes. And the Bible commands hard things of us. And the Bible has some thou shalts and some thou shalt nots. It has some very clear, look, this is what Jesus wants for you. This is how he wants you to leave. And I, I understand that some people get mad about that and walk away. I'm not saying that we should dumb down, that we should not teach the truth of what the Bible says. Of course we could. But I think Paul realized in writing to the Philippians that a lot of the conflict within the body has nothing really to do with truth. It really has nothing to do with standing on the Word of God or the truth of God. It has to do with personality and emotion, and I want something, and I didn't get something. And that's why, that's why Paul says, look, don't get motivated, because you're going to be with a lot of other people in the church. Don't get motivated by you being right. Are you winning? Are you being first? Selfish ambition, don't let that rise to the top. James has the, the clearest description of conflict, or clearest definition of where conflict comes from. And it's so clear that I hate it every time I write it, because he's right. And I hate that he's right, but he is right. James chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Like, you want to get to the root of where this comes from? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have. That's the root of conflict. You desire but do not have, so you kill. You tear stuff up. You tear relationships up. You, you tear people up. You tear, tear churches up. You tear organizations up. Why? Because you wanted it to go this way, and it didn't go that way. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So James just boils it all down and says all conflict at some level happens because one person didn't get what they wanted. That's what it comes down to. Well, one person wanted something, and they didn't get it, and they're angry about it, and so they create conflict around it. And, and, and it's not just that they wanted it a lot of times. A lot of times it's that I feel like I deserve it. Like I feel like I'm right, and everybody else is wrong, or that person is wrong, or, or I, I feel like everybody should want what I want. Like Paul says, don't, don't do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do anything from arrogance. Don't do anything for pride because that leads you to think that you're the only one that has the right answer and everybody else should want it the way you want it. And Paul says, don't get motivated by your own desires. Philippi was a city of privilege. It just was. It was a Roman colony, and so it had all of the privileges of a Roman colony. And people were used to having rights and, and getting what they deserved and, and being a little bit better than everybody else. And, and I think Paul knows that mentality. If you live in that mentality, it, it seeps into your spiritual life and into your church. Like if, you're, you, if you grow up, if you live in an environment of, well, I, I deserve my rights. I deserve to get. Paul knew that the church was going to struggle with this wherever it existed in that environment, and he was right. He was right, because we have such a hard time with that, I deserve. I des I'm owed. I know better. I, I'm smarter. And, and maybe you are, and maybe you have the best idea ever. Paul is only saying, don't elevate your wants and desires, even if they're good desires, 
Don't elevate those to a point that they would cause conflict in the body. Because the body is put here for a huge mission. So don't become an obstacle to that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, in other words, this is the opposite, this is the antidote. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So replace selfish ambition, vain conceit, arrogance. I'm right. I deserve. I ought to. I should get. Replace that with a humility that looks out for others. A humility that cares for others. A humility that puts the interest and needs and giftedness of others ahead of my own. If we're going to live in unity with one another. Paul, he had come to this realization, and he, he so wanted it for the churches that he was planting. Paul believed that Christ's followers could make a bigger impact and be more effective if they became a group of people who all looked out for each other rather than a group of individuals who all looked out for themselves. And Paul just believed that the kingdom worked better when hearts came together and we all looked out for each other versus a bunch of individuals that all met up a couple times a week, but everybody was fighting for their own thing. We've all been on groups that fight for their own things, right? Like we've all had that job in that work environment where everybody was there for themselves and everybody was trying to be seen and known and get the title and get the recognition. Right? We parent, Parents, we've... Our, our kids swam on that swim team, right? They played in that little, ball, uh, little league uh, uh, team. They, they, they were on that basketball team where all the other parents, they were about their kid and their thing. And Paul said, look, that's going to happen out there. That's, that's the way people are going to operate out there. In the church, the mission that God has given us, seeing people far from Jesus come to know Him and grow up in Christ, that mission's going to get accomplished not because we're all lobbying for our thing. It's going to get accomplished because we all bring our hearts together and we point them in the same direction. And that means at times that my, my desire gets put down the list a little bit. And maybe your desire gets put down the list a little bit because we don't want it to rise above and become an obstacle to the big thing that God is calling us to. And, and, and the struggle is we tend to drift toward that me first mentality. We, we drift toward protecting ourselves. We drift towards I'm always right. We just do. We, we, that's, just, that's just part of the sin nature of our heart is we, we have this drift towards ourselves. And Paul is saying, look, We've got to arrest that. We've got to walk in humility towards one another, and we've got to keep doing it over and over and over again. Then Paul says, I know this is going to be hard, and I know it's completely different from the way everything else works in your life. I mean, this is truly upside-down living. 
Like if you're going to live like this, it's not going to be at all what you see around you in the world, in your workplace, uh, among unbelieving friends. This is not the way you're going to see it. So let me give you an example. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. If you want to know who did this well, it was Jesus. He had the right mindset. He had the right attitude. We talk a lot about attitude. It's interesting that Paul uses attitude and mindset in in verse 5. But then when he begins to describe that attitude, he describes it in terms of actions. And, And I think the reason is, there's no way to really measure attitude apart from action. Like there's no scale. It's not a thermometer you stick in somebody's mouth and go, oh, good attitude, bad attitude. Right? How do you you know somebody has a bad attitude? You hang around them and watch them for a little while, right? You listen to what comes out of their mouth. How do you know somebody has a good attitude? You just watch them. And eventually they're going to act the way somebody with a good attitude acts. There's no way to determine attitude apart from what do people do. When Jesus taught, Jesus was asked, how am I supposed to love my neighbor? He tells a story not about how to have an affection for them. That's not what the story's about. He doesn't say, well, you should feel this towards your neighbor. When he's asked, how do I love my neighbor? Jesus tells a story about somebody who did something. He tells a story about action. Like, this guy stopped and helped equals love, right? Not, this guy felt really bad, but he didn't do anything. No. This guy stopped him. That's how you know who loved. Attitude's a lot the same way. How do we know if we have this attitude that Jesus had? How do we know if we have this mindset of humility? What do we do? How do we live? Like, what are the actions that are exhibited? And so here's what he says. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus had all of this privilege. In heaven, he's worshipped every day. That's all that's happening in heaven is he's being worshipped. He had power. How do we know he had an attitude of humility? He laid that down. He didn't demand the privilege that he was deserved. He did not demand that everybody listen to me. He did not demand that he get his way all the time. He exhibited humility by laying down the privileges that he had. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He emptied himself. That's the word. He just, he emptied himself of deserving and privilege and, and ranking over people and powering up over people and demanding of people, he emptied himself of that. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, so Jesus comes, he's king in heaven. It would have been a step down to become king on earth, but that's not what he does. He steps down to become a servant. And then, as if that's not low enough, he humbled himself. To allow his creation, remember, 
Jesus spoke these beings into place. Jesus spoke the universe into place. And then he comes into that universe and allows the universe that he created to kill him in the most humiliating, excruciating form of execution that had been devised at the time. Jesus emptied himself of all of that. All of his need to demand and have his way, even though he was right about everything, he emptied himself all of that, of all of that. And Paul says, look, if you need an example, if you want to know how well you're doing, like if there's an issue and you're running it through the grid of, should I power up with this? Should I stick to my guns with this or not? Okay, consider what Jesus did of how he just kept emptying himself. And, and however you measure up to that, that's where you stand. The challenge for us is nobody in this room is Jesus. I don't know if you thought about it yet today. You're pretty sure the person sitting next to you is not Jesus, but let me just remind you, you're not Jesus either. None of us are Jesus. Therefore, this walk of humility, it it takes continual effort on our part. You don't arrive at humility. It probably could safely be said, when you are aware of your humility, you are no longer humble, right? I mean, that's the whole point. C.S. Lewis wrote something to the effect of, um, truly humble people, they don't think about being humble. They just think about loving people. They're not going around thinking, oh, I've really got this humility thing down. When you meet a truly humble person, they're not always talking about how humble they are. For us, non-Jesus people, um, this is a constant work of our heart. I I don't think it ever goes away. I wish it would. This this ability for self-preservation to raise its head and defensiveness to raise it, I don't think it ever, ever goes away for us completely because of our sin nature. It's just always, always there. And we always have to keep coming back and asking Have I emptied myself? Paul, in the previous book, Ephesians, he's writing to another church. He's talking about the exact same topic. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. The only reason he writes that is because he knows it will take every effort to pull this off. It will take every effort all throughout our lives to walk humbly before God and before His people and not demand rights. Look, we live in a country of privilege, right? We're at all different spectrum, spectrums of that privilege, granted. There, there are different spectrums of that privilege, but we live in a country where people demand their rights, where, where people protest, all right? Now, there's great things. We have, we have wonderful freedom, but, but from the time we're born, put into our mind is this idea of, I deserve what's mine. 
I deserve to speak out. I, I deserve to boycott. I deserve to protest. Like protest is like gone crazy in our country. I don't know if you've noticed, but like just crazy. Like everybody's got something to protest. This is, this is the country we grew up in and we live in. It is a country of privilege where people demand and expect and expect everybody else to change because they're offended or they, they don't like or whatever. This is what we live in. And I think if Paul were writing to us, he said, you better be really careful because you think you think it's not you. You think it doesn't affect you. And Paul would say, it does. Because sometimes we come together and we're trying to be the body of Christ. But in the back of our mind is that I deserve and I'm privileged and it's my right and you can't. And Paul is saying, we all have to lay it down. We all have to lay it down. Because there are people outside of Jesus who need to know Jesus, and that can't be a barrier to them. That can't keep them away. They're hurting, abandoned people. They're kids that need to be loved. They're kids that need to be rescued. There's people far from Jesus who need to know that there's a God that loves them infinitely. And what I want and my rights and my deserving cannot get in the way of what God is trying to do in this world. Paul wraps this thought up in verses 9 through 11 with this idea, Therefore God, this emptying took place, this death, this pouring out, this humility took place. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself, and God raised him up. When you and I empty ourselves, I think two things happen. I think most importantly, Jesus gets raised up. I mean, he's already seated high and lifted up. We're not lifting him to a higher place, but in our church, in our hearts, he's getting more exalted and more of a priority. When there is a church that will take so seriously and passionately the need to be united and to be together and and to humble themselves before one another and before God. Listen, Jesus gets exalted in that church. I'm not picking on any other church, but there's a lot of churches where it doesn't happen. And you've been members of them before. And I have too. I I, I I grew up a preacher's kid. I seen the ugliest of the ugly of church side. I didn't sit out there. I sat in the home of the pastor. And and I know, just like you've got it in your past, and you've got it in your history, to find a church where the people love each other, they don't always agree, but they work through that with grace and and forgiveness and and open-handedness, and they keep their eye on the fact that there's something way bigger that God's trying to accomplish than this little thing that maybe we're disagreeing about or we're debating, to find a church like that, and Jesus gets exalted in that sort of place. Because when people outside of Christ come into that, 
they've never seen anything like that. They don't see it at work. They don't see it in their family. They didn't see it in their marriage or their previous marriage. They didn't see it. They saw conflict all around them. They come into a place where where people will humble themselves and care for each other above everything else. Jesus gets exalted. And And the Bible says, strangely, and I don't really know how to teach this part, the Bible says when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. I don't know all that that means, but that's pretty cool. That's good stuff. Whatever it is, it's going to be great. Like, I don't, I don't think, like, he's going to make you a celebrity. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think he's, he's going to make you some, oh, everybody look at that person. But the Bible several times says, the way up is down. Like, as you humble yourself, God exalts you. Last two things. <clears throat> I'm still convinced two years in that journey's no accident. Like this is not just some random thing that popped up in 2015. I'm still convinced that God is birthing and growing and shaping this little community of believers for his purposes and his reasons. And nothing will thwart those faster than our conflict with each other. Nothing. And we only have two years of history. We, we don't have 200 years of history as some churches do. And God's been so good. Like, like We've been committed to each other and, and we've been prayerful and we've been taking little steps. And so we don't have some big blow up that happened five years ago or 10 years ago like a lot of churches do. We, we don't have some big, oh, this was ugly, and we don't talk about that anymore. The thing that shall not be mentioned. Like we, we don't have that at Journey. And my, my plea, my prayer is what Paul's saying. Let's don't ever have that. And I don't mean let's don't ever have it because we avoid things. I don't mean we avoid and we don't talk about and I don't mean that. I mean, we're, we're a grace-filled people, even in our differences and even, in our, and even in my weaknesses, and even in the things I don't do well, that we extend grace to each other as God continues to do what He's doing here. Last thing is, <clears throat> at the end of the day, what matters most about this is what Paul says right at the end. <clears throat> that one day, you want to know why this is important? Because one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus. And we're here. The church is here so that more and more and more people would confess Jesus and bow their knee in this life and not wait until the next life. That we would walk in unity so that more and more people would not be impressed with journey and not be impressed with the pastor and not be impressed with whatever else we do, but they would be impressed with Jesus so much that they would bow the knee of their heart. They would humble themselves before God and they would receive Christ into their life and that you and I would do nothing. As long as journey exists, we would do nothing to get in the way of that. And so I'll just ask you as we close, has that happened for you? Because it's going to happen in this life or in the next life. 
But in the next life, it's too late to receive all the good things that Jesus has for you. It's too late to receive eternity and forever with Jesus if you wait until then. Has, have, you, have you come before Jesus and said, I want you to have everything. I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I, I believe I want to turn from my sins and I want to follow you. I want to trust the Jesus that died and rose again for me. Because look, this is not a threat. I'm telling you what Paul says. One way or the other, in this life or the next, you will bow before Jesus. Why not give him your heart now? Why not give him everything now? And find out what he wants to do with the rest of your life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Across this room, there are people who have been followers of Jesus for years and years. There's some who've just given their life to Christ. And maybe there's some of you who've just never done that. You've been holding back. You've been waiting. And Jesus calls to you now. Jesus calls to you. And he said, would you give your life over to me? Stop wrestling. Stop pushing back. Stop coming up with excuses. I know all your questions probably aren't answered. All of my questions aren't answered about spiritual things. But Jesus is so real and so powerful and so life-changing. Just give your life to him. Just bow the knee of your heart. Humble yourself before the God who sent his son to live and die and rise again for you. And to journey as best as we can, as much as it lies in our ability. May we never do anything that would be an obstacle to someone who wants to come to Jesus. God, this is your church from beginning to end. It was in your mind and heart to bring these people together to exalt Jesus, to hold him up so that people will be drawn to him, not drawn to us. They will be drawn to Jesus and help us in our decision-making, in our conversations, in our relationships and interactions with each other. Help us to never be an obstacle to that. And if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, let this be the day they give their life to Christ. They surrender everything and say yes to Jesus. I pray it in his name, amen.